Amen. Well, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege we have to come and worship you, to praise you, to uh, declare uh, your truth, uh, to exalt your name. And Father, I pray as we come to your word this morning that you'd prepare our hearts, that we would be ready to receive it, uh, we would, and re- we would respond as you desire. Help me to share this passage exactly as you intended, so that you'd be, you'd be greatly glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, with all the distractions, I think it's going to be wonderful, right? <laughs> all right. Well, we know the reality is that uh, to have eternal life, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must have faith in Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other name under heaven named by which we must be saved. And we must believe that he is who he is, and we must believe that he's done what he said he's done. We need need to believe that we need salvation, and it comes from him. We begin this new relationship with the Lord by faith. And then, as we have received the Lord Jesus, we are to so walk in him. We walk by faith. Now, the Bible speaks of all kinds of different faith. We have phrases such as no faith, uh, dead faith, uh, little faith, growing faith, much faith, full of faith, and great faith. And with that in mind, I wanted to share today a picture from the book of Matthew of great faith that will encourage us and remind us what genuine faith is. Now, we know what we believed and we know who we believed and we know we walk by faith but our faith can wane our faith can get uh for lack of a better term uh diluted by other things and so i want to take a little break from our series in colossians this morning and turn to matthew chapter 15 and we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 28 now the book of matthew is about the messiah king jesus christ uh matthew is about God the Son who took on human flesh and died for our sins. Uh, in Matthew one twenty one, uh, the angel says, You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we have that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to the Jewish people. God the Son took on human flesh. Those who would name his name, he came to them. Yet these Jews were in sin. They were sitting in darkness. And Jesus, having graciously had the way prepared by John the Baptist, called upon the people to repent because the kingdom was at hand. And he taught and preached the kingdom. We see that in chapters 5 through 7. And his teaching was affirmed through the miraculous, his teaching and his personhood, chapters 8 and 9. And after two years of ministering, it is apparent that the multitudes have rejected Christ, desiring miracles and food rather than salvation. Now with that, Jesus declared their condemnation, and the unrepentant religious leaders planned uh, to kill him. And so Jesus withdrew from them and began to focus on his disciples more actively. We have, uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, he sends them out in the storm and he came walking on the water to them. We see Peter with great and little faith. Great and little faith. And these disciples came to understand that he was truly the Son of God. Truly the Son of God. 
And just perceiving the passage we'll look at today, it's important to understand what's there because there's a big contrast that will help us in our passage today. Because right before our passage, there is a collision between the religious philosophy that permeated the so-called people of God and the truth revealed by Jesus Christ to the same people. Indeed, in the end of chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, the beginning of chapter 15, we see Jesus unveil the hypocrisy of the Pharisees as they attempted to accuse his disciples of breaking religious traditions by eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus made it clear that because of their externalism and their traditions, that the word of God had been added to and thus invalidated. They believed it was what they did that defiled them specifically, outwardly, uh, rather than what happens on the inside, which will manifest in what you do. Matthew uh, 15, 17, Jesus says, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And these are the things that defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Now, kids, that doesn't mean you don't wash your hands. The reality is he's saying they thought they were righteous because they washed their hands. And he's saying that's not it. It's what's on the inside that defiles a man. It's the heart. And so it's from this point where we see these Jews who thought they were clean, uh, who were actually not, who were defiled because of their hearts, he moves to a situation with a Gentile woman who the Jews would say is unclean, but we're going to see she had a changed heart, and actually that she had great faith. So again, turn your Bibles to Matthew 15, and I want to start in verse 21. It's just right after what we just read. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began crying out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Is, is, that's on, right? Got it. Jim? Okay. Is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done to you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. I believe we're going to see in this true story in the scriptures that Jesus shares, Matthew inspired by the Spirit shares uh, Jesus' words. We see in this true story that first of all, great faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. And within that, to have great faith, we must recognize our total inability, our total inability and our insufficiency, and we must recognize his total sufficiency. His total sufficiency. 
And then we see that great faith persists. And it's not presumptive or offended by God's truth, but it responds appropriately. So then what does this great faith look like? Notice again, verse 21, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now where did Jesus go away from? Well, at the end of chapter 14, he was in the land of Gesenaret. That's a fertile plain on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. That's south of Capernaum. And now he withdraws from there. And uh, indeed, after the feeding of the 5,000, we see the Jews, they were actually going to make him king by force. They wanted him to be the king. They wanted him to take care of Rome, right? So they're going to make him by force. These Jews were in unbelief, and they didn't. Then they wanted a Jesus who fit their paradigm rather than what Jesus was sharing. They needed to do, and they had, and Jesus would have nothing to do with that. And so he withdraws from them, and where to? To the district of Tyre, and Sidon. Now these would be the coastal regions of Palestine. It's what we would call southern Lebanon right now, formerly an area where the Phoenicians were. Uh, it's a Gentile area, and, it, and the term Gentile means non-Jew. You have Jews and the nations, the Gentiles. Now, because Jesus' ministry was not to the Gentiles initially, but to Jews, most likely it seems from Scripture that he withdrew to get away from the crowds that were trying to force their agenda on him rather than what he was sharing. And he probably wanted to rest, as we say. Indeed, in Mark chapter 7, verse 24, in a parallel portion, it says, And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could, yet he could not escape notice. He wanted to get away from him for that point, to rest, I believe. He wanted no one to know he was there in Tyre and Sidon. Okay, but the people found out, and look what happens. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from the region and began crying out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Wow. Now, before we get into this, um, I think we need to understand the timing, and I mentioned it early briefly. The timing that Matthew shares this truth here, we see there's a great contrast. A great contrast between the end of... Uh, the end of uh, chapter uh, 14 and 15, and then what we have here. You see, these unbelieving, hypocritical Jews were concerned about their exterior ceremonial cleanliness rather than having cleansed hearts. Cleansed hearts. And now uh, we come to a portion where we see an unclean Gentile dog. That's what they would see. That's what they would call this woman, this Canaanite woman, an unclean Gentile dog. That's what they would say. You see, the Jews were still in their sins, and although they were clean on the outside, they were wicked on the inside. In their hypocrisy, they believed all non-Jews to be unclean, and so far as to call them dogs. And there's, we'll see later on, there's two different words for dogs. This one they would call them, are speaking of those mangy, flea-bitten, half-starving scavengers roaming the streets. That's what we talk about, what they say with that. Yet today we're going to see that this supposedly, one of them, supposedly unclean Gentile dogs, actually had, in contrast to them, a cleansed heart. A cleansed heart. So again, look at verse 22. And behold, Matthew wants to take a look. Behold. If I say, behold, you're all going to look out there, right? Take a look. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from the region, began to cry, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So 
She's a woman from the land of Canaan. Okay? Now, uh, we see in Mark chapter 7, verse 26, she was from the Syrophoenician race. Okay? She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. And so what happens here? She begins crying out when she hears Jesus there. She says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She gets right to it. Here we see the request of this lady of the Lord Jesus. Now, obviously, she's heard that Jesus is in the area. And she makes a request. Now, with this request, I want to make some initial observations that reveal uh, her great faith. Later on, Jesus is going to say she has great faith. Now, we need to see those things that lead up to it that are a part of it, because I believe more than just uh, her believing that Jesus could do it, there's something behind that, as we'll say. Notice, first of all, uh, she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, she's a Gentile. Gentiles don't know of the scriptures that reveal the truth concerning the son of David unless they've heard the scriptures. She says, first of all, O Lord, son of David. Now, the term translated Lord here from the Greek kurios speaks of someone in authority, a master or a lord. And it is used extensively to speak of the I am, to speak of deity, to speak of God, more specifically to speak of Christ. Indeed, the Greek translation of the term Lord, Kyrios, uh, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament translation, we have Yahweh, which means I am, self-existent one, Lord, it's translated Lord. And when Jesus, uh, before he was born, when the angel was talking to, um, to uh, Joseph, said, uh, you shall name him Jesus, Yahshua, that means Yahweh saves, the Lord, the I am saves. And so I believe this Gentile woman understood that he had a position of authority. And I believe from context, most likely, she believed he was the I am, as we're going to see in a minute. Because later on, you'll notice in verses 22 and then in 25, she first of all, she believes he has the authority and power to heal in the spiritual sphere concerning demon possession. And then if you look at verse 25, it says she bowed down before him saying, Lord, help me. Now that word bow down is the word translated pros UK or from the Greek word, which speaks of worshiping. It's most often when it's, in, when it's brought before, when it's speaking of God, it's translated worshiping. She bowed down before him. Pros UK, worshiping. So I believe she understands that he is the Lord. But also, you know, and by the way, just just on a side note and a big side note, an eternal side note, you must believe that Jesus is Lord. You cannot be saved by a buddy named Jesus. Yes, he is a friend. He is kind. He's merciful. But he is also the Lord. He is the great I am. He has revealed himself as the I am. And we need to see him as he is. There are different Jesuses out there made up by, by in men's imaginations and by false teachers and, and evil men and imposters. But the real Jesus is revealed in the word of God. And you need to believe that he is the Lord because our problem is that we think we're Lord. Our problem is that we follow our own will and our own desires. That's man's sin problem. And our own will and our own desires leads to death, but his will leads to life. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Turn there. Romans 10. 
Paul's making the case, if you read the first seven verses, I'm going to start in verse 8, that uh, the Jews uh, were, are in unbelief because they didn't try to come to God by faith, but by works. But even though God had beckoned them back in Deuteronomy to believe, to believe, it's the, it's the faith that they're talking about, it's not far, it's right there. Just turn to the Lord with all your heart. This is what he's talking about. Romans 10.8, but what does it say? The, this is from Deuteronomy. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's, and then he says, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Amen, right? Amen. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Tremendous. Colossians chapter 2, we'll get to this in our Colossians study, Lord willing. He says for chapter 2, verse 5, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You received him by faith. You believed he was the Lord. And then notice, back in our passage, she not only says, O Lord, she says something very interesting, Son of David. Son of David. What does that mean? First of all, we need to realize that God made a promise to David, a covenant with him, that on his throne, his kingdom would be established forever. On the throne of David would be established forever. Turn just really quickly. You can note these down, but turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, that means when you die, Right? Um, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. That's speaking of Solomon initially. He will, shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay? And then look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the throne of David, Right? And then you can flip over to the middle of your Bibles, Psalm 89, Psalm 89. And this is a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite, Psalm 89. I will sing of the loving kindnesses of the Lord forever. Amen. Right? We were just doing that, weren't we? To all generations, I will make known thy faithfulness with my mouth. God is faithful, right? Praise the Lord. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens thou wilt establish thy faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. You see, the Jews understood because of the word of God, which I just read, that God would place one on the throne forever the son of David, and that son of David would be the Messiah, the one who would suffer for the glories to follow. He would be the Messiah who reigns, the king. He would be on the throne of David forever. And so when they looked for the Messiah, they would call him the son of David 
And so she's acknowledging he's the Christ. He's the son of David, along with his lordship. Amazing. She's a Gentile. The amazing thing about this is you could not know this as a Gentile apart from the truth that God had revealed to the Jews, which they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests of nations, but they weren't because of their failure of the faith, right? But God used that anyway. And Scripture is clear that Jesus is the son of David. Luke chapter, actually, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, and I'll read this for you. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 30, and this is the angel speaking to Mary, and the angel said, chapter 1, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This lady is saying, O Lord, son of David. She's acknowledging his personhood as the Lord and the Christ. It's quite amazing. So when we think of good, great faith, it's not simply, you know, you can not have faith at all, but if you want to get something from God, you try to say, God, do this for me, and then you believe you can do it because you want it for yourself. But here, great faith is based on the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. So important, so important what we see here. The son of David points to his humanity and his royalty and the term Christ. He's the king of kings. To be saved, we need to recognize he's both the Lord and Christ. We see this in Acts 22. Therefore, let the house, Acts 2.22, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Excuse me. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be forgiven, and get baptized, right? That's what he's saying. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God, the I Am. And so this Canaanite woman's object of her faith was the Lord, the Son of David. The Son of David. Now, with this in mind, I want to ask you, what's the object of your faith? Is it the Jesus from the scriptures? Is it the Lord, the son of David? Is it the Lord from the word of God? There are a lot of different Jesuses. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that they were looking at other Jesuses. There are Jesuses that men make out to be Jesus, but it's not Jesus at all. It's a false Jesus. Here we see the Lord Jesus from scripture. So who do you trust? Apart from a focus and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never have great faith. Great faith is centered in a trust of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. For who he is. Okay, now we're going to see also that great faith also includes a recognition of one's total inability and one's total and his total adequacy. You see, I can't have faith that God's going to help me preach if I think I can do it. Then God says, go ahead and do it. But if I trust him completely knowing I cannot do it, he will do it through me. 
and in everything we must recognize our total inadequacy. Second Corinthians chapter 3, 5, not that we are adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Tremendous reality. So notice our passage back in Matthew chapter 15. And behold, the Canaanite woman came down from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Yikes. What an awful thing. It appears she had a young daughter. Mark speaks of her as a little daughter, 725, Mark 725, and uses the word paiden, speaks of a child, verse 30, speaks of a young child. This is a young, young girl. This is a young girl. And having been the father of a young girl that's growing up, not a young girl anymore, but having been there, I I can't imagine anything more awful than having your young daughter demon-possessed. How horrible is that? How horrible. Now, the word translated demon-possessed here, diomaizomai, speaks of just that, demon-possession. In a parallel passage in Mark chapter 7, verse 25, Mark says the little girl had an unclean spirit. In Mark chapter uh, uh, 7, verse 30, uh, we see the quote that the demon had departed. You see, we have the stars of heaven, they were called, the morning stars. They sang to the Lord. God created the angels, and there was a third of those, Revelation chapter 12, that fell with Satan. They are demons. They are unclean spirits. They are not the elect angels. They are unclean. They are demons. Now, I'm not going to get into all the issues concerning demon stuff. I taught that a lot in Matthew chapter 8 years ago. You can look that up. But I'll just share a few things. First of all, demons can and do inhibit, do inhibit, inhabit, not inhibit. They do inhabit the unsaved. They can. Now, we do not see believers ever being demon-possessed, and I believe because we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit that no demon can ever possess a true believer. It can, can mess with us, can, we can be tempted, we can be influenced, um, but uh, cannot be possessed. If you are a believer, you can't. You see, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have Christ in us. Now we saw in Matthew chapter 8, 9, and 12 and other passages of scriptures that those who had demons could be possessed by one or more demons. Remember, there was the legion of demons that possessed the man in chapter 8 of Matthew. And we also see that those who are demon-possessed are not in their right minds. They exhibit violent rebellion, exhibit super strength. There are also physical ailments associated with it, such as deafness, dumbness, and blindness sometimes. That could be demon-possession. not saying that is, but we see that in Scripture. We also see in Scripture that children can be demon-possessed. Now, the reality is believers cannot be demon-possessed, but those who don't know Christ can be. And it's, and it's actually a horrible thing to think about children being possessed. Turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, saying, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit that makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. 
And he answered them, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often has thrown him him both into the fire and of the water to destroy him. Really awful. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. We'll see that in our passage, right? And when Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly growing, he rebuked the unclean spirit, said, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after coming out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. The reality is children can be possessed by demons if you don't know jesus christ you are in a dangerous place because our society is becoming more and more wicked more and more demonic on the internet there's all kinds of stuff you can involve yourself in that opens the door for demonic activity you see when you don't believe satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving second corinthians 4 Some of those kids here maybe are somewhere that might be playing around with Christianity. You listen to mommy and daddy, but you really don't believe. Things are going fine, but you don't trust. Uh, The reality is there is evil, and you need a Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when you get saved, a demon cannot possess you. He can't. You're protected. For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But if you reject Christ and continue your own way, you might find yourself someday in a place you never thought you would be. So back to our passage. This Gentile woman is in total agony, as would be any parent with a child demon-possessed as such. She says she is cruelly demon-possessed. And she goes to the only one who can deliver this, this little girl, Jesus Christ. And notice her urgent yet humble petition. We need to learn from this. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Then in verse 25, she cries out, Lord, help me. She says, have mercy. The term have mercy, Elios, Elios, out of the noun Elios, speaks of an attitude or emotion that is aroused by the affliction of another. It speaks of compassion or sympathy speaks of showing kindness or concern to someone in serious need. Mercy gives attention to those in misery. Now, folks, it's interesting. Uh, in Scripture, we see that only those who recognize their total and absolute helplessness cry out for mercy. You don't see people crying out for mercy unless they realize they're totally helpless. That's what we need to do when we get saved. Lord, save me. Whether it's someone seeking deliverance for their children from demonic oppression, Matthew 17, 15, 15, 22, as we see here, or blind in Matthew 9 and, Matthew 9 and 20, whether people cry, these people who cry out for mercy, they realize their total helplessness. And folks, we can learn from this. 
Great faith recognizes one's inability to do anything. We're helpless. Great faith also, as we'll see, believes that the Lord can do what he has promised. So she says, have mercy on me. And you know, God is a merciful God. The Lord Jesus is a merciful God. And he mercifully died for our sins. And if we repent and trust in him, he will mercifully save us. You say, Lord, save me. Have mercy on me. He'll save you. So what happens at this point? It's kind of interesting. Does Jesus mercifully say, go when your daughter is healed? It's interesting. He actually doesn't respond to her. You go, wait a second. A merciful God not responding? Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. You see, Jesus is still working on us and his disciples. And he's going to show them and us something that we need to understand. So he doesn't heal this daughter right away. He doesn't even respond right away. So why doesn't he respond? Well, we get that. We understand that, right? We cry out for things we know are his will. We, we cry for those things and we don't have a response. Whether it's work, raising kids, ministry, I've done that. It seems that God is silent, not responding. But the reality here is, even in the midst of this woman's grief, he does not immediately respond. He did not answer her a word. So why, why not? Why believe he is going to be testing and thus proving her faith to us through Scripture and to the, these, uh, these disciples in his presence? So notice, middle of 23, and his disciples came to him, kept asking him, saying, send her away, for she is shouting out after us. They're getting annoyed. Our text says she is shouting out after us, and the word speaks of crying out. She's not just she's screaming out, help, mercy. Disciples wanted to send, him, send her away. Now the implication of the statement, send her away, was just heal her and get her out of our midst, because Jesus healed everyone who came to him, Right? Just get her out. Get her out. And notice his answer. Very interesting. He's going to prove something to them, that he acts, even in his humanity, according to the will of God. And that's what we need to learn. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Very interesting. Here, Jesus tells the disciples of the reality of God's plan. Remember, he had gone to Gentile territory to avoid the crowds, not to minister. Not to minister. And at this point, Jesus reveals that to his disciples and to us that God clearly had an order in which he would reveal and bring forth salvation. It was for the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile. And it's extremely important to recognize that these messianic promises given in the Old Testament have an order in which they are brought forth. If you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the Bible. Indeed, after the initial promise to deliver Eve, deliver us through Eve's seed, who would crush Satan, Genesis 3, we have the promise of everyone being blessed through Abraham's seed, the nations being blessed. And Abraham's seed would go from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all up to the person of Christ, the son of David. 
And although God made a covenant with Israel, the fruition of their disobedience was foreshadowed in Jeremiah 31, which would reveal he would make a new covenant and bring the forgiveness of sins. And yet this new covenant would bring blessings which would overflow to the nations. But it was to Israel first. God's plan was for Jesus to come to his own first, that's Israel, offer them the kingdom. He's the king, which means they need to repent and believe. He came to the lost sheep of Israel first. And indeed, we see from Scripture, we have insight beyond this now that shows it was God's plan always to use their rejection to bring salvation to everyone. But they needed first to reject him. He had to go to them first, be rejected, and go to the cross and die for our sins. Indeed, in Luke chapter 17, it says, uh, before he comes in his glory, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Got to do that first, be rejected by the Jews. We know in John chapter 1 that as many has received him to them, he came, excuse me, let me start back. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to them. God had a priority of how he was working. We have to learn this because we get offended if he doesn't work on us our way. We got to look at his word and see his priority. Romans chapter 11 reveals that there's going to be salvation for Israel but the Gentiles, they need to, they need, the Gentiles were going to come and be saved after the Jews rejected the Lord. And I'll clarify that. Romans 11, 11. I say then, they did not stumble so far as to fall, did they? Speaking of Jews, may it never be. Saying, are the Jews out? Are those people that say the church is Jews, uh, are, the, are the Jews today? Are they right? May it never be. They're not right. But by their transgression of the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, to make them jealous. Now if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That's when Israel gets saved, right? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You see, the gospel is for, it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and then the Gentile. The Jew first and the Gentile. It's very clear, Acts chapter 15, uh, Peter makes it clear that, uh, that God made a choice, and I'll read this to you. Exodus Turner, Acts chapter 15. God had a plan, and you gotta understand this, or you won't understand the Old Testament. You won't understand the New Testament. You won't understand the mystery of the church. You get it all mixed up, and then you get taken captive by these reform guys. Okay? And your intellect will bound you up, rather than trusting the Lord by faith. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of Gentiles they should hear the gospel and believe, or the the gospel believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, that's Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Ultimately, salvation would move to the Gentiles. But Jesus came first to the lost sheep 
of Israel. That was who he was ministering to. So we need to understand the progressive plan of God and that Jesus functioned according to God's will and his plan. So then Jesus is telling his disciples he came first for Israel. Middle of verse 23, back in our passage, and the disciples came to him and asking him, saying, send her away for she is shouting out after us. But he answered, said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But this is amazing now. She doesn't quit. She doesn't quit. She's got actually great faith, by the way. Notice what happens. Verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Wow. This is a, a lady who's not, who is persistent. God in human flesh is her only hope. So she comes and bows down. The term speaks, prosyuke, of worshiping. That's what it means. It speaks of, uh, uh, in the context of God, it speaks of worship. She's petitioning him for only something God can do. Notice her simple prayer, Lord, help me. You know, nothing wrong with long prayers. But I find more often when we're in trouble going for the Lord, our prayers are quite short. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. We can learn from her great faith. It involves submission and humble worship. You know, when you trust the Lord, you worship him. You acknowledge him for who he is. Let me ask you this. Does your faith contain an element of humble acknowledgement of who God really is, who you're coming to? But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Remember the disciples in the boat after Jesus walked on the water and calmed the sea? They worshiped the Lord, saying, certainly is God's son. They worshiped him. It actually says they worshiped him. Do you worship him, declaring who he is in your heart of hearts? So then, great faith consists of the right object. That's Jesus Christ as Lord, as revealed in the word of God. And it also reveals a great faith has an an acknowledgement of our inability and his total sufficiency. He can do it, we can't. And it is also, as we'll see, not quenched by a lack of response. She came back. He didn't respond. You know, we kind of give up at times. She didn't give up. It's persistent and humbly worshipful. And then notice, as we continue this wonderful true story, great faith is not presumptive or offended by God's word. Instead, it acknowledges and responds submissively and wisely to it. But she came and began, verse 25, to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. That's a, it's emphatic. Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's interesting here. He responds to her worshipful request and says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, one might think that Jesus is being very unkind here, be tempted to think he's using the same attitude the unbelieving Jews had. You're a dog. It's not good to take the children and throw it to dogs, Gentile dogs. But he doesn't use that word that speaks of mangy dogs. He uses a word here uh, that speaks of the household pet, And you could translate it doggy or puppy. So she would have understood. He's not calling her a Gentile dog. He's saying, interesting, 
that it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. Interesting, right? So with this in mind, she picks this up. And Jesus deliberately uses a play on words to reveal his will in the right context. And after saying, after he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied for this chapter, this is Mark chapter 7. Actually, let's go there. I want you to see this. Mark chapter 7, verse 27. This helps us a little bit. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. There's an order in which God brought came, was to do his will. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the doggies. That's what it, that word. He's making the simple point. He came to the Jews first. That's what he's saying. For the disciples to hear it. That they would be the ones who would first receive the offer of the benefits the Messiah brings. They would be first. Which included healing and deliverance. And so Jesus' answer is not saying the Gentiles aren't going to be included. They're just not first. They're just not first. You see, God, through a mystery, would bring his body to the Gentiles, through the church, through a mystery. But he came to the Jews first in flesh. Now, at this point, she could have got really offended. How dare Jesus show preference to Jews over Gentiles? Boy, we live in a society that is just ready to be offended in anything. We have the, the people who sell offense every day. They, they peddle it to everyone, try to encourage everyone to, to be upset about everything, basically. How dare Jesus show favoritism? She could have been very self-righteous. But notice she fully accepts the reality of Israel's election and priority over the Gentiles. She accepts it. You see, when you have great faith... You believe what God says, even when it contradicts your your agenda or your thoughts. You accept it. Notice what's interesting here. She acknowledges God's sovereignty, his will, and yet petitions according to his word. She acknowledges her lower position as a Gentile, yet one who is still in the master's family. Kind of interesting. Verse 27, but she said, yes, Lord, but even the doggies... Our beloved pets, right? Feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. This is a this is a wonderful statement. This is amazing. She doesn't argue with Jesus. She acknowledges sovereignly the truth that was laid forth. Yes, Lord, what you say is true. No argument, no offense. It's true. But she responds rightly. She doesn't dispute the reality that God had different purposes for different people groups at different times. She doesn't dispute that. And she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. What a wonderful statement. She understands what Jesus said to her. She got it. She got it. He didn't see her as an unclean Gentile dog. He simply revealed he came to the Jews first, and she accepted it. And notice on that basis, she continues her petition. Yes, Lord, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. So here we have an acknowledgement, even though she's a little doggy in that sense, she's, that he's still her master. 
Yes, your ministry is to children of Israel right now. I'm not disputing that. But those crumbs fall, those leftovers they reject. Couldn't that be for me? Wow. What amazing faith. She did not dispute his sovereignty, his will, but accepted it and petitioned according to his word. That's great faith. That's great faith. And notice the Lord's response. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It's wonderful. Be it done to you for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. This is great. Mark reveals, as we saw earlier, that she went back to her home and she found lying child lying on the bed, having the demon having departed. She was healed. So do you want to know what great faith is? Jesus says, Oh woman, your faith is great. So what she did, what she believed, exhibited great faith. She's an example. She's an example. You see, faith comes from hearing the word. It's all from him, yet we are the ones that exhibit it. Somehow this weird thing, yes, yes, God says it is all him, but yet we exercise faith. How is that? He says, your faith is great. He's not saying the faith that I gave you is great. He's saying your faith. Now, he brought it about through his word, by his power, and his spirit, of course. He says, she has great faith. So how about you? What is your faith like? What is your faith like? Is it little faith, no faith, growing faith, much faith? Or great faith. Today we've seen great faith is in the person of Jesus as revealed in the word. And that it must include a total recognition of one's inability and his total sufficiency. And that great faith humbly and reverently persists. It's not presumptive or offended by God's truth, but responds appropriately to what God says. Some of you may have realized you don't have even faith in Jesus. Repent and believe in him. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Save me, Lord Jesus. Some of us might have realized our faith isn't where we thought it was. Maybe our eyes have been pulled off of Jesus, the object of our faith. Maybe we're leaning on our understanding, not trusting him completely, not depending completely. Maybe it's quenched because uh, God's been silent. Maybe our humble worship is missing in our petitions to him. Maybe our heart is not bowed. Maybe we don't like what God has said, thinking it's not fair. We need to confess our sin and learn from this wonderful example of a Gentile woman with great faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this true example of this woman who you said had great faith. Um, I thank you. I pray that uh, we would learn from this, that we would trust in your son Jesus, that we would rely on him, that we would not uh, see ourselves as adequate, but would trust in you. 
And Father, I pray that we would not get uh, discouraged when you don't answer, that we would persist in prayer humbly and worshipfully. And Father, when your word seemingly contradicts our, our requests, Lord God, may we not be offended. May we respond rightly as this woman did. So Lord, thank you for what we have seen today. In Jesus' name.